Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Once again, I'm John. If you like what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel, find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, t-shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. And today uh, we get to have the pleasure of speaking with uh, Scott Schwartz. Scott is an actor, stuntman, professional wrestler, uh, worked in law enforcement, um, and one of the most real uh, people you will get, especially from the Hollywood side. Uh, just in our conversations before we started recording, Scott is salt of the earth, heart on the sleeve type of personality. And so, Scott, it's great to have you on here. Thank you very much for having me. This has been a real pain in the ass. Yeah, no, I hear you. As well as, as you can see, I'm convalescing. <laughs> One of the coolest things, obviously, I reached out to you. People that are familiar with uh, your filmography, some of the movies okay. obviously are Ocean's Eleven through Ocean's Thirteen as Bruiser, Wrong Side of Town, Bridge of Dragons, Fire Down Below, Savati, Back in Action, um, your movie Changing Hands, which I do want to talk about. Um, you're very prolific in the movie, television, that genre of stuff. And one of the things I loved about you when I first reached out to you was that you have no problems being yourself in that industry. And I think that's something that's served you very well. You know... I was never one of these phony bastards that show up on the set and all full of ego and don't realize that how gifted they are to be working. But if you want to know, I'm holding up this bottle because having grown up in Philadelphia, bums used to hide their liquor from the police by putting it in a paper bag. I put mine in these bottles and I pour vodka into it and I can get a good stiff belt anywhere I'm at, and people will never know. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I actually have not drank, drank alcohol yet. Uh, I don't want to poison my liver. So your question once again was uh, about... Yeah, just you in general, how did you able to kind of stay so grounded uh, in an industry that you hear horror stories of people, whether it is addiction problems or abuse or uh, just assholes, really. And, but for you to be out there and work with some of the best people in the industry is a testament to yourself, too, because you're very true to yourself at your core. I think at the end of the day, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and be happy with what you see. Otherwise, you'll become an alcoholic or a drug addict or one of these people who quit the business and regret it because they're not being um, recognized anymore, or they want to flash their SAG card at the box office when a movie's playing and get a free admission. Um, I really never gave a flying, you know what? And um, I just, Stay true to myself and my friends who I've had for, I've had one friend who I've had for um, several decades, 50 some odd years, and people want me to stay friends on Facebook for 50 minutes. Um, but I always put an emphasis on doing the right thing, telling the truth, 
Um, a lot of the scruples I have are from my grandparents. Because God knows my parents sucked. Um, uh, I was abused as a child. Not not sexually or anything like that. Not one of these asshats in Hollywood who says, oh, I was abused as a child for sympathy. Um, but I never touched my kids because I wanted to break the mold. I saw a lot of kids around me taking drugs, but I never took drugs. I never, I made a choice. Not laying one of these free injection sites and injecting myself with LSD, lysergic acid, diethylamide every day. Uh, I just had a, a game plan in wrestling. I, did I get screwed up? Yeah. Did I take drugs? No. Uh, Louis Piccoli, God rest his soul, he's a great guy, died in 19, whatever it was. He was taking 100 Oxycontin a day, a day. So when when the Kobayama told me that, I said, and you're surprised how on why he died? I mean, what the fuck? And, And things like that should open your eyes when you see people dying one after the other on on television and the news and you're like, wow, I want to take drugs. No, my sister passed on at 37 years old from uh, lung cancer. And that's not a real big impetus for me to start smoking. Uh, When I was five years old, I was nagging my parents like most kids do. But I was twice the impact was twice the size and probably cerebrally twice the size. And I said, I want to smoke, I want to smoke. So at five years old, they held out a cigarette, and they said, put your lips on it and inhale as much as you can. I inhaled as much as I can. I barely made it to the toilet to throw my guts out. And you know what? I never touched it again. One and done. Uh, When I was 13 years old, me and uh, one of my very best friends decided we were going to be like the older kids and we were going to take booze from our father's liquor cabinets and go out in the street and drink it like the kids were all drinking champagne, all that other foolish nonsense. And, you know, we're in our teens and I went in the liquor cabinet and I was looking and there was a bottle of something I never knew what it was. I looked around and tried to see something like it. Never did. I really couldn't care less. But uh, it looked like Hawaiian punch. It was red. And I was thirsty. (laughs) Probably my pre-diabetic stages. And I took the cap off the bottle and guzzled it because I thought it was Hawaiian punch. And could barely make it to the toilet in time to throw up. Another big impetus for drinking. Um, But, you know, you make choices in life. Um, The fact that I would go wrestle in different parts around the world, and I'd always leave with money in my pocket. Uh, All the other wrestlers were leaving penniless, broke, 
they all had habits. Drugs, drinking, taking people out for elaborate dinners, running limousines, they're trying to play the part of a, a championship wrestler. And as one of my dear, dear friends, George the Animal Steel said to me, one day we're eating lunch, which I'm thankful to say we had a lot of meals together because he was a great guy. And he said to me, you know what I hate about wrestling? And I said, what? He said, if you give a guy a championship belt, he really believes he's a champion. And that's so true because if you don't watch your ass, you'll get in the ring with somebody who can teach you a lesson, you know, and make you look bad in front of 10 or 20,000 people. I mean, what, what, you know, why would you want to do that? So it is what it is. How did, and I want to talk about how did you get into professional wrestling, specifically the jumping in there, and then you got some awesome mentorship from George Yamelsteel or Killer Kowalski or Bruno Sabertino. Like those people for me as a kid in the 80s, I grew up watching wrestling. I'm, I'm, obviously, I'm still a fan, but it seems like that, that from the 80s before, that's when the men were men, the women were with, like it was just pure wrestling. It was awesome. And you were part of a time where you had these awesome personalities, Chief Strongbone, all these guys. And so how did you kind of, what was your thoughts as you kind of got into the industry? Because it, it seems like well, a lot of people would be blown away by it. Well, you know, that, that, that's a good question. My standard, my standard answer is I got into wrestling because I can't sing or dance. Uh, but the truth, the reality is, I wrestled guys like Chief Strongbow, and I remember looking across the ring, and he's doing his little war dance, and I'm like, "What the fuck am I doing here?" Because I only saw these guys on TV, and thankfully, because of Kowalski's name, God rest his soul, and God rest Stuart Steele's soul, yeah, getting in the ring with these guys. And thankfully, like I said, I didn't have to lose matches to them, but I won in a way that was not a pinfall or anything like that. I won on disqualifications or countouts or whatever. But um, yeah, it was mind blowing because when you first get into it, you're basically a wrestling fan. Uh, a lot of guys, the big joke in wrestling was you would you would never say that you watch wrestling on TV. Never. But all the guys did. We were spending time alone with these guys because through my habits of not having a habit, they loved hanging around me because they could stay away from the stuff themselves. Like uh, Tour Kamada, another one, God rest his soul. I love Tour. Uh, Tour and I wrestled a million times. Um, Tour would say, all the guys would say, hey, you want to go out to this club? This guy has all kinds of women lined up for us and we get free drinks and the owner knows us and uh, it's fabulous. And uh, Tour Kamara would say to them, no, 
me and the giant are just going to stay in the room tonight and get some beers. <laughs> and then as soon as we get out of the arena, we go to the liquor store, buy root beer. I buy sugar-free because I was, of course, diabetic. And he would buy regular root beer. And we buy all kinds of potato chips. We were both fat fucks. And we just sit there and talk about wrestling and eat chips. And it was a wonderful experience. The rest of the guys were all hung over the next day. And we were like all chipper and happy and get up at seven in the morning. And we're so happy to be straight. And those guys were all dragging their asses around, you know, another impetus to start drinking. <laughs> One of the, so as you, I'm assuming with your wrestling background and dealing with crowds and people and talking and playing these type of characters, as you transition into say stunt work or acting, your aim, one of the cool things about you is not only you were very imposing, um, and I, I don't, I think you actually got gentler when you shaved your goatee, but that's we'll talk about that in a little bit. But with your size and how intimidating you are, how did the wrestling help you with acting in terms of talking and playing these characters that anyone can be, play a big guy, but you, you put so much heart, whether it is a bad guy, into playing these characters? Did wrestling have a correlation to your transition to your acting? Well, let's face it. When you get into any business, you have to have a resume, which I did not. So when um, the way it played out was I was at in Bakersfield and back in the rabbit ears days on TV. I know you're not that old to remember that, but um, they would pick up a wrestling show broadcast from Bakersfield in L.A. So one day, I'm at the matches in the dressing room, and the promoter comes in, and he wasn't a big joker, straight, straightforward. His name, another guy, rest in peace. They say the older you get, the more people you lose. Uh, Anton Leone, Anton Ripper Leone, for anybody who wants to look it up. And um, Ripper was one of the great guys, one of the greatest guys I've ever met. Like, I go into a, uh, we go to Denny's after the matches to eat, and Leone would come in, the boys would all shrug him off. And I go, Anton, please come sit down. And we'd eat soup and talk for hours. And, um, one day, Leone comes in the dressing room and goes, Schwartz. Yes. He never called me Schwartz. Back then, it was Giant David. Then he called me David. So uh, I said, yes. And he said, somebody's here to see you. I said, who? An agent from Hollywood. I go, that's the biggest bullshit I've ever heard in my life. What would they be doing in Bakersfield? So... Reluctantly, I went out, and the guy was out there, and Anton pointed him out. I sat down with him, and he goes, you know, I got to tell you, I've seen you on TV. I've seen you on your interviews, and um, you would make a great actor. I said, really? So <laughs> I've heard. So he goes, please. 
I want a bunch of you to come down and see me. So one day we stayed, we used to drive from Bakersfield back to our home base in Sacramento. We lived our lives for like two years on the 99 freeway. That was our life. I could have told you what excellent sold nuts. We stopped for diamond walnuts and stuff like that. Uh, back then it was reasonably priced, not like in the uh, the present economy. Um, but uh, that was our life. So one week, one week we stayed overnight in Bakersfield. On we were there on Saturday night. We stayed in Bakersfield on Sunday night, and on Monday morning we drove to the glorious place called Hollywood. So we go to his office, we meet him, he's handing out lists of SAG agents and whatever. And um, we went to his office, we're talking, he, he says, I want to take you guys to lunch. So it was a nice, lavish place. And the hit, and I I wouldn't say it's my wife was in the room, but she, she kicked me in the nads. Um, well, when we're coming out of the place, a Rolls Royce Silver Shadow pulled up and that, that attracts your attention. So I'm looking at it. The driver gets out and opens the back door, out steps Tiffany Powers or Stephanie Powers, excuse me. And at that time, she was on TV. I had a big crush on her. I want my wife here. So uh, I had a big crush on her. I go, is that Stephanie Powers? He goes, yes. He goes, oh, you always see stars down here. I thought to myself, God, I may like this. <laughs> it's kind of cool. So I was like a kid in a candy store. So we got out of there, drove all the way back, and all the way we were talking. And all the guys were going, I don't trust that guy. I don't like that guy. No, they didn't say that, actually. I was the one that said that. They all said, oh, yeah, acting, movies, oh. They were all starstruck by that. Because eventually you have to say to yourself, when am I going to stop making money with my body? You're like a whore. You're selling your body for money. So um, a lot of them were looking for some kind of transaction. So... Or transition. So um, I'll make sure my vocabulary is correct. <laughs> People call me a dumbass, which I am anyway. Um, so we get back to Sacramento, to our home base, and they go their way, I go my way. I took the list that he'd given us, and I started looking up, and I looked to say highlighted. Was there no highlighters in those days? I circled every Jewish agent. By the name, um, Ackerman, uh, blah, 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 Cohen, all the Jewish names I could see. Yep. I didn't call them there, you a Jew, because I was <laughs> Jewish. So, um, and they say, who's this? I say, I'm the not-so-nice Jewish boy from Philadelphia. And they'd ask, what, what for? So... Finally, I worked my way down to 
a company, and I'll never forget this because this is the first company that ever gave me a shake. Alan Goldstein and Associates. He said, I'm going to give you an agent. I said, really? So he put me in touch with his agent, Susie Moore. I don't know how I remember all these names. It's just like you want to forget them, but you can't. Susie Moore was the agent he assigned me to. So the first question I asked is, how long have you been in the business? And she had been in the business for like 10, 15 years. Um, I looked her up a couple of times to say hi. And she, I guess, quit the business and moved to uh, Texas. Uh, but she used to, I used to take the bus, the Greyhound bus, because I couldn't deprive the other wrestlers of the car. They would call me at 10.30 at night or whatever it was, and say, be in Hollywood. No, they called me earlier than that. Be in Hollywood tomorrow at 9 o'clock for an audition. So Susie used to pull up. I took my wife there to show her the place, the Hollywood bus station. I get down there. If they're driving in a hot, sweaty bus for <laughs> 10 hours, 10 hours, get out of the bus, run into the bathroom, take a whore bath, change my clothes, put fresh clothes on, put plenty of plenty of aqua belbo, whatever the hell was a big thing back then, high karate, and uh, smell like a whore, and go out to her car, and she'd be waiting for me. And she'd tool me around. She'd have a couple... Um, Audition schedule for me. I remember my first audition. That it was for, believe it or not, Dallas. Do you remember Dallas, John? I do. I remember, I watched the reruns. You're time dating yourself. Um, so she took me on an audition for Dallas. So I go in there, and all the producers are in there. So I'm nervous as fuck. And they're like, okay, are you one of JR's hired bad guys? I'm thinking to myself, I can handle this. I'm a bad guy. They go, read it with anger. And I go, okay. So we read. I go, blah, 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 blah. They okay. Uh, read it with joy. Blah, 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 blah. Just monotone every time. Same thing over and over again. So after the meeting was over, Susie says to me, God, you did great. But it was embedded in my mind how, how much I sucked. So I said, man, if you want to go one more step in this business, you better learn what the fuck you're doing because you suck. <laughs> so not that any of those other vain fucks in Hollywood would ever admit that they're bad. We won't talk about that. Okay, so um, um, I just, and, and it's funny because I've been on the set so many times where people were saying, oh, I only had, had one line. I only had, I only had two lines. Oh, they didn't show my face. And I'm like, I went a solid 10 fucking years 
before I had one line. I would stand at the door of a bar and somebody would walk up to me and I go, and growl and they walk in. Or I them and they walk in. Never had a fucking line. So these people were complaining that I didn't have a line. I go, I went 10 fucking years without a line. What the fuck are you complaining about? But in time, they give you more and more and more. And I had some joyous days on the set. And um, I know I'll never, I'll never have anything bad to look back on. I don't have to worry about some nine feet tall kid on the street tapping me in the back and saying, "You're my daddy," or um, <laughs> or some some woman checking me, tapping me in the shoulder, like, "You raped me on the set." Never did any of that stuff, so I'm pretty clean in in the film business and out of the film business. One of my fondest memories of seeing you on the screen, uh, well, there's two actually. Fire down below, you played this character Pimple against uh, yeah. against Seagal, and back in action with Roddy Piper and Billy Blanks. And when I started collecting VHS tapes, obviously back in like the early 2000s, when before it actually got out of the hand. Um, they disappeared, but like movies like that, it's just Savati, Bridget Dragons, um, even one that came out later 2000s, Wrong Side of Town with Batista before he kind of blew up. You've had the, you've had the honor of. Now I don't, I don't want to talk about the people you went up against specifically, but for you to be that guy that goes against the hero of these movies, these action stars, it must. How cool is it to kind of play in that world where it's like you're the main folly or the main henchman to go against some of these heroes? Well, first of all, Mr. Uh, Mr. Um, blog uh, interviewer, let me ask you, I hate to answer a question with a question. You were talking about VHS tapes. How much porn did you have? I didn't have any porn on VHS. <laughs> <laughs> liar, liar. Your nose is getting longer, longer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I've always been very fortunate uh, in the business to, A, have a lot of presence and the fact that I was 10 feet tall didn't hurt. Um, And people rely on me and I go on the set and all the other actors are flubbing their fucking lines. They didn't take the time to, to, to read them and study them. And they're too busy snorting cocaine and doing other things that are time-consuming. <laughs> and um, I just go out there, and the first take, I would deliver it. First take. And the doctor would say, man, that was great. And then they'd, when I fucked up, I'd say fuck out loud. And all the uh, people would chatter and, and laugh. Not because they really thought it was funny, but because they wanted to be politically correct. So, um, yeah, just being me is just carried me along. And I was very, very fortunate and blessed to have gotten what I got out of it. And um, very memorable. And there used to be a time where I couldn't go out without being recognized everywhere. Me and my wife went one time to Metropolis. Have you ever been there? I have, yes. 
Oh my God, what a great experience. So we're in a little uh, gift shop there after we tour around several photo ops. And uh, I actually saw somebody bigger than me, Superman. And um, we're in the gift shop and somebody comes up to me and goes, hey man, are you in the movies? I go, yeah, my family's home movies. <laughs> What's my standard answer? They, he said, you're a liar. I said, what movie was I in? Starts mentioning the Oceans movies. I go, yeah, you got me. So all these people are crowding around me for autographs in the Superman gift shop. Can you imagine that? And uh, it's thrilling. And you know what? I always, from day one, I always said, look, I'm always going to treat the people with respect. For those people that rent your videos and buy your shit. So you know what? Uh, I'm always going to be nice to them. I'll give them little pricks in Hollywood that say, oh, leave me alone. I'm busy. You know, or something like that. And I never wanted to do that. I never, never wanted to be the anti-fan. You brought up the Ocean's 11, 12, and 13 character as Bruiser. The interaction you have with George Clooney in all the movies is it feels very authentic and real, and it looks like you were having a blast, and so was George. How was it working with him at the time, specifically for a scene like that where you guys have to interact and the physical part of it? Is it how was George in terms of trusting you with your background and hey, I can make this as real as possible, but also ensure the safety of someone like him? Yeah. The fact that I was a professional wrestler and knew how to pull my punches uh, when I wanted to, if people challenged me in the street and said wrestling's all fake, of course, at that point, I had to turn up a couple of notches to discourage them from that. But that's the way we did it back in the old days. Nowadays, it's so exposed. Vince McMahon has expose the business for being fake and because God forbid he would make a buck. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. And uh, you have to operate within those parameters to make sure you give a good product for the people to see and like. But you know what? Uh, on the set of Oceans, my political views were different than a lot of the people on the set. <laughs> but um, that being said, I mean, making that clear, I got along with everyone. I came back for all three films, which even Julia Roberts did not. And um, so I was well-liked by the producer, Jerry Weintraub, who was a great, great man a fellow Jew. And um, no, I didn't get hired because I was a Jew. And um, Steven Soderbergh, a genius, and the rest of the crew who loved me. And um, I I'm happy to say that because I was always me. Uh, I wasn't a phony. I never talked like a phony. I never made... <laughs> I'm the kind of guy... And you know this by talking to me several times. I'm not the guy who makes you feel uncomfortable with saying what's in your head. I guess 
this kind of came to me. Is it is it tough for you, or was it tough for you in this industry to be outspoken about your your Jewish heritage, or that you are politically uh, different than a lot of people in Hollywood? Does it obviously you've been st- true to yourself, but does that do you think that ever hinders you when it comes to work, or people don't want to work with you because they are selfish in the sense that they just because you think differently to them or feel differently to them, you're not going to be a good person. No, to you know when I was a kid. My Jewish relatives used to sit around, and my aunts and my uncles, and they'd be talking. I'm, I'm a kid, so I'm listening. And they're talking about, oh, that guy, he's a Jew. That guy, he's a Jew. That guy, he's a Jew. I'm like, how the fuck do they know that? And now that I'm older, I become, I become them. So... <laughs> I'll look at a guy on TV, and it's funny because my wife is Christian. I would never marry a Jewish woman. <laughs> so um, <laughs> we, we watch the TV, and I'll say, you see that guy right there? And she'll say, yeah. I go, okay. He has a big nose and an afro. You know who he is? And she'll go, Jew. And we laugh, we laugh like crazy about it because you spot them in everything and watch the credits and the name will be Ron Blo- Ron Bloomberg or or um, Dennis uh, Cohen. And I'm like, see, I told you he was a Jew. And she goes, how do you know this? I go, I know. But it's funny because all the things my grandparents, God rest both their souls, uh, told me, now I'm doing it. I'm living vicariously through them. You know? How did you get involved or start working for law enforcement? Because that is a very, obviously, admirable job serving others. Um, but there's not a lot of people that had the went from professional wrestling, acting, all this other stuff you do, to wanting to actually do law enforcement. So how'd that come to be? Well, one day, I was hanging out and I had met a sheriff Derek Sill Derek said to me um, we were talking one day I always carried uh, a 45 and um, he knew it and um, I'd say I mean, I wasn't anti-gun like the rest of California. <laughs> so um, he uh, he knew it. And one day, I was sick of riding the roller coaster in Hollywood. You work one day, and you make $5,000. Then you don't work another day for another two months. But the electric bill and the mortgage and everything is coming due every month. It doesn't stop because you're not working. So I said, I have to supplement my earnings by having something steady. So me and this guy were talking one night, and he goes, why don't you join the sheriff's department? I go, I don't know if I can make it through physical training. He goes, you will. Don't worry about it. I said, okay. And when I got into it, I was thinking to myself, what the hell am I doing? 
I mean, okay. I graduated high school. I went to college. I dropped out of college because I got into wrestling. Money making always screws up your educational requirements. Um, because you don't want to sit in class and pay money and not make money. So, and responsibility adds to that dilemma. So, you're sitting there and you want to get a job. And I'm like, what job will let me take off when I can take off? So, I'm in the sheriff's department. We start studying the Constitution, believe it or not. Every police officer graduates with the knowledge, not they all use them, but the knowledge of the Constitution. So there's do's and don'ts, and you have to abide by that. And like there was a time when I had to remediate a class because the question was, if you were on call and you got a call on your radio that there's a suspect in the mental hospital uh, going awry, what level of force would you use? When you, when you got there, the man was bloody and standing with a baseball bat. So my answer was hand to hand. And they said, that's wrong. I said, okay, I come from Philadelphia. I know how to ward off a bad attack because I did. And they said, wrong answer. They forced me to remediate the class. So finally, the instructor told me, look, the answer they want, it forced fed me the answer. The answer they want is that you would use deadly force. And I'm like, why? Why needlessly take a life? And his explanation was, the bat is basically deadly force. When somebody uses deadly force against you, you have the right to use deadly force against them. I mean, God forbid I do that today, I'd be fried, they'd fry my ass and sue you, and and whatever. So I said, well, you know what? I'll I'll put down whatever the hell they want. And I did. I passed the course. But the truth of the matter is, growing up in Philadelphia, when people open their car trunk, everyone has a baseball bat in there. (laughs) Nobody plays baseball, but they all have a baseball bat in their trunk. (laughs) <laughs> I can only imagine, especially the last two years with the whole movement of defund police and stuff. And just, I, when you were a cop was, could you picture yourself be a cop now? Would it, would you, would this be an environment you think you could be succeeded or is this be something where? No, yeah. you, no, you know, I'm so tickled pink that I got out of it. And a lot of my friends in the department, and other departments followed suit. A, they got the hell out of California. You get tired of spending $6 for a gallon of gas or whatever the average is out there. Or 
dealing with these people that have their heads up their asses, you just say enough is enough. So I had the gumption and the money, thankfully, because I had no habits of saying I'm moving. I got out. I had shot a bunch of films down here in Louisiana, and I wanted to move down here. My wife totally agreed with me. We loaded up the truck and moved out of Beverly, not like the Beverly Hillbillies. We moved out of Beverly. So um, here the taxes are way lower. I live in a giant house which is great when you're hosting guests. Uh, but, you know, it's a different style of living down here. You have to watch what you say around people. There's a lot of churches on every other corner. You say stuff like, God bless you, and people won't shrug it off, like in California, the Antichrist, um, or the Satan worshipers, or the million other things they're into out there. But you know what? Um, I'm just happy that I walked away when it was time to walk away. I remember looking in my rearview mirror and seeing LA in the rearview mirror and thought to myself, thank God, goodbye. No more traffic, no more, no more stuff. The auditions that I have down here, you go across a 26 mile causeway you're on the water for 26 miles. No graffiti, no gang members. Water for 26 miles an hour, for 26 miles before you get across the lake into New Orleans. So it's a different lifestyle here. And it's great. It's I love it. I love it. One of your <clears throat> favorite... Uh, one of my favorite roles and stuff you movie directed changing hands for those that haven't seen it yet basically it's a story of how a gun uh, is bought and gone through different environments whether it's a gang member a cop all this different stories based around a single handgun and at the time I watched it just because you and I just thought it was, it was I just had it and watched it but as you get older and stuff happens in the world now yeah there's a push for fighting for the second amendment or whatever it is yeah, it's a very interesting movie that holds up so well today. The idea you had behind this as a director was super amazing. Well, I was told this one night, me and my partner were out. And when I say partner, I mean police partner, not sexual partner. You got to be clear on that shit nowadays. Um, we're out on patrol and he told me a story and then inspired the whole thing. Just, Planted a seed. I thought it was a great story. Uh, somebody in the sheriff's department pulled over a gang member, a suspected gang member, alleged gang member. So uh, he patted him down and found a weapon on him. He took the weapon, cuffed the suspect, put the suspect in the car, ran the... Um, ran the weapons serial number in our um, gun registry database that they had in California. It came back as 
destroyed by the sheriff's department. And here it was on the street. So apparently somebody had been selling them back into the public. So he tried to report to his commanding officer. Didn't go anywhere. Tried to report to his lieutenant. All I'm told, drop it, don't worry about it. We got it covered. He kept forging forward, called his captain up, made an appointment to the captain. One day he was come out of the dry cleaners and put his dry cleaning on the back of his motorcycle, a little clip-on thing he had back there. And um, as he pulled away from the dry cleaners, a car came out of nowhere and hit him and hospitalized him. Wow. The accident was so bad. Come to find out, the car was a sheriff's department unmarked vehicle. Wow. How's that? Yeah. So then he goes to the hospital for his injuries, and a guy comes in the room and says, Look, we will give you 500,000. I'll tell you how big the scope of this whole thing was. We'll give you $500,000. Just retire, go away. Don't breathe another word of this incident to anybody, and you have to look, keep looking over your shoulder. And he took it and left. So, retired on full pension, got 500K, and left. And I was like, wow. I started thinking about that story more and more and more, and I'm like, nobody ever knows where a gun comes from. Or what it was used in before you get it. So I just started casting all my friends. Kevin Servo was in it. And all these guys worked for free because they liked me. And a lot of people, told, working actors, that is, told me that my directing style was like Clint Eastwood. Just get the shot and move on. Don't yep. kill time and waste time and going to overtime and bullshit people all day. I got to tell you, one of the funniest and befuddling things that happened to me on the set was my shot will be first up of the day. I checked the call sheet. No more shots the rest of the day. So after the first shot, I'd ask the assistant director, can I leave? And they'd say, hold on one minute. They'd leave, walk away, come back. No, the director wants you on the set in case we're going to film something else. So I'd sit there. They'd keep me for eight fucking hours and then release me. Can you believe that? That's like a Jew. (laughs) Uh, Before I let you go, your trademark goatee, which has been almost everything you've done, is kind of missing right now. Is there a reason why you shaved? You know, I got I got sick and tired of looking at my ugly face with gray hair on it, and I'm so egotistical like some of those other Hollywood fucks. So I shaved it off for a while, and then I really didn't like the configuration of my face without the goatee. So I've started growing it back in, 
I water it three times a day to try to grow it, but I don't know if that'll help or not. But um, I'm hoping in time I get back to my natural look and hide most of my face. As, as I like to say, most people wear masks for COVID. I wear masks because I'm ugly. So before I let you go, if someone wants to check you out, I know you have an awesome website, which I want you to talk about, uh, but anything else you got coming up that people can support you on or anything like that? No, you know what? I retired from the business. Uh, they made a mockery out of the old Screen Actors Guild. We have a lawsuit going on now against the Screen Actors Guild because two years ago, it used to be the um, the medical benefits that we earned and put money into was went like this. If you're vested in the union for so many years, and I'm vested in for 20 years, so if you're vested in the union, you, at age 65, that you get Social Security, but the bills of Social Security does not pay, you submit the Screen Actors Guild, and they pay it. Well, two years ago, they pulled the rug out from under everybody and stopped that. They said, no more, no more medical benefits. Thankfully, I'm getting my pension, but I don't know how long that will last because in my estimation, Screen Actors Guild will declare bankruptcy and try to squeeze people out from that too. So uh, they lie to people. When I got into the Screen Actors Guild, the the dues to get into the guild were $600. You wouldn't have to qualify with any amount of money to make health benefits. But the fact that you were in Screen Actors Guild was enough to qualify you. Nowadays, it's $3,500 hundred dollars to get in and then you have to earn twenty thousand dollars so they lot of these people so you get you don't get anything you pay for everything and then once you get it you have to pay for the policy so it ain't wine and roses it's bullshit right. but you know a lot of people will lie to you and scam you in life anyway so why should you act surprised? Right. Well, Scott, this has been awesome. I love the, again, I love the fact that you're very raw and unapologetic about everything in your life. And I think it's something that's sorely missing uh, in society today, specifically the industries that you are proud and I guess very obviously successful in. Um, so again, thank you for jumping on here. Hey, all I got to tell you is, I'm the same kid from Philadelphia that I was growing up. My best friend and I email each other and I'll say, uh, fuck you to him. And he'll say, fuck you to me. And it's just like we're 12 years old again. And you know what? There ain't nothing wrong with that. You I know, you. put the smile on my face and spring of my step. Well, thank you, Scott. Uh, Glad to have you on here. Oh, we had those audio issues. No, it's all good, sir. We will uh, chat soon. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. You might not know this, but before I record an episode, I like to break a sweat. 
Did I do that using the ChopFit? Over the course of the past year, the ChopFit has allowed me to lose weight, tone up my body, and feel even more amazing about myself. A feeling that you should all feel about yourselves as well. If you use this code, SPEARCHOP10, you get $10 off your order. Once again, use code SPEARCHOP10 for $10 off your ChopFit order. It'll change your life. Thank you. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.